Growing up, my family had a tradition for New Year's Eve. It was a time-honored tradition that went back generations. Uh, countless people across the country, uh, probably across the world, would join us uh, the last few hours every December 31st. Maybe you or someone you knew uh, joined in this same tradition. Uh, I am, of course, speaking of the Twilight Zone Marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, every New Year's Eve, it was great. Yes, perfect. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the original Twilight Zone here. 1960s, black and white, created and presented by Rod Serling, that Twilight Zone. For those of you that aren't familiar, uh, this was an, an anthology show where each episode was a standalone short story. Uh, the stories included elements of science fiction, dystopian futures, suspense, thriller. Um, even now, this show is ranked in the top 10 shows of all time by places like Rolling Stone Magazine and the Writers Guild of America. But the thing that really made this show stand out was how these stories would have unexpected, often dark, twist endings. So, in possibly the best episode of the series, Earth is visited by nine-foot-tall aliens. I, I guess this is technically a spoiler, but the show's been out for 60 years, so I feel like, I don't know, the moratorium on that has passed. So, in a meeting at the UN, the aliens announce uh, their humanitarian nature of their visit, including providing advanced technology to Earth. They leave Earth with all of this potential for advancement, but they leave behind a book in their alien language. As humans try to figure out if the aliens truly are benevolent, they decipher the title of the book, To Serve Man. These aliens are servants. Humanity fully embraces this alien technology, and as a result, wars end, hunger is no more, People even get to travel to the planet of the aliens, uh, you know, show their gratitude, learn more from them. Everything seems amazing. Near the end of the episode, the main character in the story finally realizes that to serve man isn't about how these aliens can spread love and care. And the great quote, to serve man, it's, it's a cookbook. And that's how you do a twist ending. <laughs> this surprise completely changes the context and understanding of this episode. You can't unsee that. So, what does this have to do with our current sermon series, Cruciformed? Don't worry, I'm not going to say the Bible is a cookbook. Uh, I, it's not, I don't even think it's like a metaphorical cookbook. Uh, but throughout this series, we have been looking at how the cross of Jesus shapes us and informs our lives. Today, in particular, we're going to look at how Jesus' victory through the cross changes everything. And just like an episode of The Twilight Zone, once you know the ending, you understand the whole story differently. So for us, we're going to look at part of the ending and look at how that changes how we see everything, past, present, future. This morning's text comes to us from the book of Revelation. This is a book that has been abused on kind of both ends of the spectrum. Uh, some communities have overly focused and obsessed over it. 
um, while others have largely ignored it. I think both of these approaches are really a misuse of the book of Revelation. And there are a lot of things that could be said about it, um, but one thing that I think needs to be discussed um, before we start reading is genre. If you know the genre of a book, you know a lot about it already without reading a single page. If you know a book is a biography, then you'd expect a lot of dates and stories, probably citations. If you're reading a book of poetry, you probably wouldn't be ex expecting it to read like a biography. I hope not. Uh, but you'd probably be maybe slowing down your reading, looking for different layers of meaning. And if you're reading a murder mystery, then you expect to find out who did it in the end. If not, it wasn't a good murder mystery, you know? So for the book of Revelation, its genre is apocalypse. Yes, this is a genre of ancient literature. Uh, there are other writings like this in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Uh, you know, this isn't the only example we have. Uh, the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 13 and Mark are two exceptionally like, prominent examples of this style of writing. Um, but the word apocalypse, which maybe to our ears sounds weird and scary, uh, it means unveiling, uh, a revealing, a revelation is a revealing. Notice it doesn't mean the end of the world. It is a revealing. So, knowing that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, here are three quick things to kind of remember as we read. Number one, this is for a community in pain. Apocalypse as a genre is written to those who need the veil of the future to be pulled back a little bit. They need to see some hope. The people that Revelation is written to and by know what it means to be oppressed and to be in need of something better to hold on to. Number two, when things are revealed, it causes a disruption. There's no way around it. You can't unreveal a revelation. But this disruption, the way the things are, is not spread out evenly. The more power someone or something has, the more their world is disrupted. That's part of the hope for the community that's suffering. Number three, quick things to remember. Revelation is bifocal. It walks the line between what is happening now, in this world, in our lives, and what hasn't yet come to fruition. It holds in tension the evils of this present age and the new creation to come. Apocalyptic literature sees the world now in a way which knows the future hope. We'll revisit these points, um, these ideas later, uh, but let's actually turn to our text for today. Uh, Revelation 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne that was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven 
on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. In this vision of the throne room of God, heavenly worship radiates from every inch of existence. We aren't told who's seated on the throne. Instead, we're shown who's seated there. Revealing is a lot more about showing and a lot less about telling. The one who's worthy to sit on the throne, this eternal throne, has something in their hand, a rolled up piece of parchment. It's covered in writing. We can't make out what it says, but its words must be of infinite importance. Keeping it all contained are seven wax seals. Now, one seal is typically sufficient. It makes known who the scroll is from, it ensures that its integrity is intact and no one messed with it. Two seals, that adds another layer of security and assurance. But seven, seven seals, that's more than enough. This scroll is more than enough. It's more important than we can imagine. These words must be held back with a perfected strength. Obviously, we know we don't have the strength to open something so weighty. And in a moment of anticipation, a strong messenger from the one who sits on the throne speaks up, and surely this mighty one will be the one to open the seals. But no. This angel cries out, asking, who is worthy to break these seals? Surely someone in heaven, on earth, anywhere can open this scroll. I don't know, Moses, Mother Teresa, a disciple hand-picked by Jesus. But no, no one. And if no one is worthy, then what's the point? John, who's narrating this vision, starts to cry because he believes that if there's no one who can open the seals, then there's no hope. And if there's no hope, crime see crying seems like a very appropriate response. But then a voice from the crowd mentions that someone is coming. Someone who can open the scroll. The Lion of Judah who has won the battle, is here to open this scroll. The strong angel could not do it, but the Lion of Judah, the mightiest of all, can handle a piece of paper. This is the God we worship, the God of the victory, the God who is strong when we are weak, who lifts us up on eagle's wings to soar to heights we didn't know before. 
This is the message of hope for the first hearers of the book of Revelation. They were being physically persecuted by the Roman Empire. They knew what it meant to be in the grips of the powers that control the world. In Revelation, this power is named Babylon. More than just an ancient kingdom, Babylon represents the powers of complete control. It embodies godlessness. So when these early Christians hear that the Lion of Judah is not only worthy enough, but has already won, there's hope. It's not just about those who first read Revelation. The entire world is involved in this cosmic struggle. There's a battle going on, and it's not an individual battle. It's so much bigger than any one person or one people group. But that's the power of the Lion of Judah to act on behalf of all of us to create a new reality. God working outside of our own power for our good. The work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers and principalities that hold humanity in bondage, sin, death, evil. Through this victory, we are all set free from their dominion. Babylon is not all-powerful. Evil was conquered. Jesus is worthy. The Lion of Judah will reign. And that's the message that deep down I wish I could preach this morning. Uh, I'd like to stop right there. That's a neat kind of neat bow on it, uh, but I can't. If we stopped there, we wouldn't get the entire episode of the Twilight Zone. Uh, we'd still be thinking that the aliens were here to help. Uh, you know, I think at this point we figured out the name of the book. We still don't understand what's in that book yet. So we will pick up in Revelation where we left off. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on earth. Word of, our, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this moment, of expectant excitement, we turn to look at the mighty, conquering Lion of Judah. And where we expect to see sharp claws, 
and a regal mane and hear a booming roar, we see a lamb, a helpless lamb who could not even defend itself and was killed. This is not our expected image of strength and might and victory. This is not the image of something stronger than a strong angel and able to open these seven seals. Except it is. The lamb is the image of strength and might and victory because strength and might and victory in the kingdom of God are not measured by anything else other than love. And there is no greater love than what is shown to us in the Lamb of God, willing to give up his own life on earth. God reveals God's self as the crucified God. And that is what love looks like. That is what worthiness looks like. Remember back the strong angel? He didn't ask who was strong enough to open the seals. No. The angel asked, who is worthy? The Lamb of God alone is worthy. Now, I don't want this twist ending to go overlooked here. This is the cookbook moment. I think this is the cookbook moment of Revelation. I mean, really for the Bible. Humanity expects conquering to be through strength. Instead, the Lamb of God shows us conquering in the midst of chaos and bloodshed, brutality, without committing any violence at all. The Lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword, but by its wounds. This is the biggest disruption in history, and that's a big statement, but I think it's true. The Lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword, but by its wounds. And this changes everything. We live in a violent world. I don't mean that we live in a world with violence in it. Uh, I mean that human sin has fundamentally ingrained violence in our everyday. We live in a world where military power means having the most soldiers and the biggest equipment and the capacity for killing the most amount of people in the littlest amount of time. We live in a world where countless lives, and I mean countless lives, are taken from God's creation at the hands of violence every minute of every day. We live in a world where the language we use is taken directly from the battlefield. In the pandemic, we talk about workers being on the front lines. A deadline is a term from the Civil War which has a much deadlier meaning than how we use it now. A blockbuster was a bomb big enough to destroy a city block. We use this language without thinking twice about the violence it references. And if that violence wasn't ingrained to us enough, we are inundated with the message that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
This is the motto of probably half of the self-help, like motivational books published this past century. But the very point we learn from the slaughtered lamb is that becoming stronger isn't our purpose in life. Actually, it misses the point completely. It's not about becoming stronger to stay alive and outlast others. Life is about embracing our calling to love and be loved by God, regardless of the harm inflicted on us. To go even further, the Lamb shows us that this love does not involve violence. In fact, there's no room for violence in the full love of God. This is where it's important for us to remember the Twilight Zone. Because when you know the ending of a Twilight Zone episode, you watch it differently the second or third or fourth or tenth time. So when we're shown that the Lion of Judah is actually a slaughtered lamb, we have to read the Bible differently. Where there is violence in the name of God, this is inconsistent with the image of the lamb. The military conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua has a different dimension added to our reading. Jesus telling his disciples to put the sword down in the Garden of Gethsemane takes a different tone. When we read, read these stories in this light, we start to ask ourselves if there's layers of meaning that we've missed. When I said that we need to read the Bible differently, um, when we know that we worship a God of nonviolence, I really mean it. I think it's also true that we need to read Bible with bifocals, which is kind of a lie because I actually think it's more like trifocals. So it doesn't, but I said bifocals earlier, but now we're going trifocals. There's great value in researching ancient times, the lives that the people lived, the history of biblical texts, scholarly consensus, ideas surrounding the Bible. That's kind of the first lens we get of understanding the story. We want to get in the mind and the world of the first readers. We can't know for certain what the writers wanted their intended audiences to get from every word in the Bible, but we can do a good work to help inform us. This type of reading and research matters. If it didn't, then seminaries wouldn't be a thing, commentaries would be useless, and no one would you know, want to buy a, a Bible with all of those annotations and notes on the bottom. The second view is one that's often easiest. It's reading the Bible right now, right here, with our own experiences and biases. We read things with our own eyes, our own context. That's a good thing. If we believe that the Bible is a living text, then it must have something to say about who we are and where we are right now. Lastly, I already mentioned this part, but we need to read and believe with the end in mind. Once we know that the Lamb of God is the one who conquers and at this unimpressive creature did it without being an aggressor, 
That has to change things. It changed the world and is continuing to change the world until every created thing is fully redeemed. All three of these lenses help us grow closer to God. Um, it's not about picking one. It's about using all of them. As we worship a God who is not simply contained in the past or just in the present or far off in the future, we worship a God who was and is and is to come. And God's victory reigns true throughout. The victory of God is something we all are able to celebrate in. I think deep down, we all want to be part of this redemption story where violence isn't the answer. I think our pride gets in the way. We want to feel like we can do something and that we worship a God who fights our battles. We worship a God who did not fight back. That doesn't mean he didn't agonize over what was happening and suffer. It does mean that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world wasn't trying to act like a lion. So why do we try to act like lions? Part of our challenge to re-understand our story is that the world of violence is the only world we know. To cope, we try to bask in the beauty all around us while ignoring the pain and this ever-present violence. We also desperately want to pretend that our earthly weapons are effective for some larger purpose. However, just as the armor, armor of God is metaphorical and spiritual, so too are the tools that we must use. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. That's right, people aren't the enemies. And all too often, we treat them that way. And in spite of all of this, there is hope. And it is a hard hope. It's a hope that requires, by its very nature, for us not to do something, but to be ourselves. That's it. That's deliverance from evil. So even though powers and principalities continue, we are not prisoners of those powers. We are prisoners of hope. And we are called to be imitators of Christ. And if we take that seriously, then the call to hammer our guns into plows is one that must carry weight in the Christian life. The powerful powerlessness of following Jesus is nonviolence. Called the Christian life is to be cruciformed, our sermon series. Yes, the cross changes us. But more than that, the shape of our life must look like that very cross. The image that comes to mind for me because I like baking, is a cookie cutter. The edge of that mold changes the dough. The result is not another cookie cutter, but it's something that looks like the shape of that cookie cutter. And depending on the shape of the dough, 
there is excess that's left out. Sometimes there isn't quite enough to fill out the mold entirely. Obviously, this metaphor breaks down, but it helps show us an important truth about the Christian life. We are called to be molded by God in the shape of the Lamb of God. We're called to be imitators of Christ, and our worthiness, how much we are loved, has nothing to do with our strength, has nothing to do with what we have done, what we're doing right now, what we will do. We are inheritors of Christ's worthiness simply by being because we are made in the image of God as an outpouring of God's love. The good news of the Lamb of God is that the victory has been won, an unashamedly nonviolent victory that makes the Lamb worthy of all glory and honor and praise brings worthiness. That worthiness does not stop at Jesus. See, that good news is that the worthiness is manifest in the love of God and that this love is available to the entire world. That twilight zone moment where the lion disappears and we're left with a slaughtered lamb is one of painful and worthy love, showing us that God loved the world so much, that God would stop at nothing. At the end of the day, the Lamb of God extends the same love to the entire world so that we might receive, experience, and share this love of God. The entirety of creation is bent by sin, and yet we are loved by God without exception. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. I pray that each of us can know the love of God. Receive its life-giving worthiness. Experience its freedom. And share that love with a world deeply in need of healing from the Lamb of God. Amen.